0: Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at Forum UW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Witschdok, and in this episode, I'm speaking to Lawrence Glickman. Lawrence Glickman is the Stephen and Evelyn Millman Professor of American Studies in the Department of History at Cornell University. He's the author slash editor of five books, including Free Enterprise in American History. And this book is the topic for this podcast, where we discuss the origins of the idea and term of free enterprise in American political history, And we discuss how this term has framed American politics since the 1930s. Hello, Professor Lawrence Glickman.
1: Hello, Nicholas. How are you?
0: I'm good. Thank you. Very happy to have you on. Uh, Your 2019 book, Free Enterprise, uh, is a history of the term and idea of free enterprise in American history. Um, What is so special about this term and what motivated you to write this book?
1: Well, I'll take the second question first. Uh, there are kind of long-term and shorter-term motivations, but I would say the longest-term motivation is when I started my first job at the University of South Carolina. Before classes even started, uh, a grad student came into my office, and we were talking about my academic interests, and he said, don't you think that free enterprise, it, you know, the free enterprise system is what made America so great? hmm now, I was coming from Berkeley, California, where I had done my PhD, and no one had ever uttered a sentence like that to me uh, in the previous six years. So I said, you know, that's that's a really interesting question. I actually wrote it down in my journal that day, um, you know, because I hadn't really read much about the history of this term and kind of exactly what he meant by that. Um, right. So that was kind of a long-term motivation. And um there was a whole bunch of literature in the 90s uh, about the myth of free markets in the 19th century, say, that you know, showed that government was very involved in economic development and things like that. So I was sort of interested in it at, at the level of um, what is, uh, what do people think they mean by the term free enterprise? But I hadn't really do- dove into the term. And then a second motivation came uh, when I was writing my uh, previous book, which is a history of consumer activism in America. Mm -hmm. And one of the first boycott movements in the United States that I was studying was abolitionist boycotts of slave-made goods. And uh, they used the term free enterprise to refer Mm. to goods made by free laborers rather than slave laborers. Uh, So plantation-made goods were slave enterprises and goods made by Free wage laborers were free enterprises. So I thought, wow, Mm -hmm. that's really interesting. I haven't really seen the term in this context. And that was really one of the first introductions of the term in the United States. I've been interested in sort of the history of political language my whole career. My first book was about the idea of the living wage, when Mm -hmm. that term developed, how it changed meanings. My second book on boycotts was, uh, you know, in part about. That term was only coined in 1880, but the practice existed, you know, for a century or way, way more, depending on how you define it. Well, before that, I thought, you know, maybe I'll look at kind of the history of this term free enterprise and see how the meaning was contested and has evolved and so forth. And that's what I decided to do starting in the 19th century, moving into the present and um, You know, I think there are a lot of things I found that surprised me uh, about it, but that was sort of the the root of the idea. The final thing was that one of the courses I teach is called From the New Deal to the Age of Reagan. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in how critics of the New Deal often contrasted it with something they called free enterprise. Um, so I kind of had these three entry points and I wanted to um, kind of put the you know all that in context by looking at what people meant when they use the term. And no one had really done this before. Uh, it's interesting when I ask my students in various classes, how many of them are familiar with the concept of free enterprise? Almost all of them always raise their hands, mm. but then when I ask them what it actually means. Um, A few people sort of raise their hand and say, well, isn't it the same thing as laissez-faire or free markets? Uh, But nobody's super confident about that. One of the things I discovered in my research is that uh, advocates of free enterprise in the anti-New Deal context uh, really rejected the idea that free enterprise was synonymous with laissez-faire. They rejected that um, linkage altogether. And so um, then what are you left with? If that's not what free enterprise means, what exactly does it mean? And that's kind of, that was the motivating story behind my book.
0: That is really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the term is definitely still an extremely wide use, but um, if you don't mind, what exactly is the difference then between free markets uh, or the free market system, free enterprise, the free enterprise system? And laissez-faire, because I think you could definitely have the impression that those terms are used interchangeably, at least in today's political communications. Um, I think
1: they, I think they are today. I agree with that.
0: Mm-hmm. But so you say, but the, the origin of those terms in the United States context is uh, was of a nature where those terms were not synonymous.
1: Right. Um, uh, one thing that I think is that free market really um, wasn't used all that often. I mean, in fact, one of the things that I was planning to include in the book and it wound up on the cutting room floor was kind of a dual history of free enterprise and free market. And one of the things you find is that uh, in the 19th century, free market often meant a physical place where a city would allow vendors to operate without having to pay for a license or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, the New Orleans free market uh, or the New York free market. Um, so it was not the abstract idea of free markets that we have today. It was really mm. uh, a physical place. Um, and my sense is that it was only really with the kind of professionalization and popularization of economics in the mid 20th century that that term really uh, became widely used. Uh, Rather than sort of being a technical term used in economics, sort of more broadly used. And uh, when I've done like Google Ngrams, looking at free enterprise and free markets, free enterprise is way ahead early in the century. And then mm. uh, free markets sort of surpasses it sometime after World War II. Um, so that's that's one one thing is I think just free free markets weren't used in that sense as often. I mean, they were occasionally used in that way, but, but much less often. Um, I think the big difference is that advocates of uh, free enterprise saw it as an, and I guess some advocates of free markets do this as well, but I would say advocates of free enterprise were more conscious of it being a political, ethical, and not merely an economic system. and, mm. um, and many advocates of free enterprise, in the 20th century would say things like, you know, we don't want to go back to a system of laissez-faire. You know, we agree that certain reforms in the past have been necessary. Um, someone like Herbert Hoover, uh, who was one of the real popularizers of the term after he lost to FDR in mm. 1932, uh, he became a, you know, a vigorous opponent of the New Deal really for the rest of his life. People don't realize that he actually outlived John F. Kennedy. He lived till 1964, so for basically 30 some odd years, Hoover criticized the New Deal, uh, but refused to do it in free market terms um, because he he you know he himself had been a progressive in the early 20th century, uh, recognized that government had some role to play in creating a framework for. You know, economic transactions and that sort of thing. And many other people like Hoover sort of disclaim that connection to free markets. And I, I talk about that in my book. The interesting thing is it was almost always backward looking. In other words, they would say that certain government uh, reforms in the past were totally legitimate, but anytime any future reform came up, they completely rejected it. So they could never find anything in the present that was suitable but they would point to things in the past, like say the, free, uh, the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 um, as a legitimate uh, place for the government to regulate markets. Uh, and there were other examples they used. So, and, and in the 19th century, one of the things I try to show is that uh, for 19th century advocates of free enterprise um, like President Andrew Jackson, who I think was the first American president to use the term in uh, his address to Congress, I think in 1828, uh, but I'm not positive of the date off the top of my head. But anyway, he um, said that basically um, free enterprise is a government project. If we are gonna Mm. release entrepreneurial energy in this country, uh, government needs to play a role. And of course that was what a lot of um, the Whig party members who later became Republicans who talked about, the American system, or previously internal improvements. This was an idea that things like canals and later railroads were necessary to release entrepreneurial energy. So they didn't pit government on the one hand and free enterprise on the other. And in fact, they often used enterprise as sort of an adjective. They talked about uh, the enterprising spirit and the role that government would play in releasing that. So for all those reasons, I think it's complicated to say that um, even though today I think that connection is, makes intuitive sense to a lot of people, but I think historically it 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 didn't work that way.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to come back to this binary that you describe, where in today's conversations it's either government or market, and. Yeah, and that's really the end of the conversation in in a lot of instances. Um, But first, you argue um, then that the modern meaning of this term of free enterprise um, mainly derives from uh, more and more organized opposition to the New Deal. Um, So could you sketch that history just in in broad strokes for us?
1: Sure, yeah. Well, one of the things that I found actually is that um, advocates of Free enterprise as an anti-New Deal concept uh, were themselves extremely frustrated that they couldn't define the term clearly and in a way that ordinary people understood. And one of my chapters is about the attempt to sort of impose a definition through things like free enterprise definition contests and essay contests and this sort of thing. And uh, ultimately, my view is that uh, they gave up on that project because there really was they couldn't find a sort of consensus definition. And, hmm. um, and there were, you know, um, a lot of material in the archives about groups like the National Association of Manufacturers, which was one of the trade associations that was very much against the New Deal, kind of throwing up their hands and, and even sometimes saying, maybe we need to find another term, you know. Oh, really? <laughs> this one is just, we're really having a trouble defining it. Maybe we should come up with another term but so my argument is that ultimately um, the uh, real meaning came down to a negative meaning because mm. um, it was hard to agree on what free enterprise was sub- substantively for, but it was much easier to say it is sort of not the new deal. Uh, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, so and, and I think that that was super important because one of the points I make in my book is that. I think free enterprise became one of the reasons it became such an important political language is that it became sort of a holding bin Mm. for people who would later self identify as conservatives and as Republicans, but many people who opposed the New Deal were not Republicans at all they were Democrats, uh, many Southern Democrats, for example, Um, and Many Republicans who opposed the New Deal, like Herbert Hoover, for example, uh, refused to call himself a conservative. His view was that he was a liberal Mm. and that Franklin Roosevelt had perverted the meaning of liberalism, had turned it on its head. And um, and so um, there were. So I think what happened was free enterprise became sort of a consensus language for this unruly group of strange bedfellows who opposed the New Deal but weren't really willing to put themselves in a conservative camp, uh, Mm. weren't all even Republicans. Um, This was sort of a binding language for that group of people. And um, it really wasn't until maybe the 1950s, uh, when you get the founding of National Review, or Russell Kirk's book, The Conservative Mind. Uh, But really, in the 1960s, with say, Barry Goldwater, I think that you find a lot of Americans identifying as conservative, um, and so um, so I think it was tactically an important choice because it was a way to bring a lot of people together um, and uh, not alienate uh, people whose political identity was also uh, at odds with other members of this group.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm curious about the political economy here because. You know when you talk about free enter I think when you bring up the term free enterprise today, I think people generally see this more as a yeah an economics term, I suppose broadly construed. but especially given the historical context that you describe um, sort of the modern meaning um, really maybe originating or becoming a little bit more defined in in New deal opposition um, in that historical context, it, and you make that um, clear in the book too, right? There's a huge political component here, where this is really very strongly motivated by a fear of, um, you know, overly strong government that seems to be um, in in reaction to, uh, you know, the Great Depression uh, across the world, you know, like famously in in Germany and Russia, in um, other parts of the world, uh, leading to ex- very very extremely statist responses. And um, I suppose Americans just being concerned that they're they're next potentially.
1: Yeah, I I do think that's part of it. Um, Although one of the points that I think it's really important to make is that and I try to make this point is that, first of all, the New Deal that they opposed was not really the actual New Deal, which was a very complicated and contradictory um, uh, series of laws and gestures and rhetoric and all that. you know, sometimes really believe strongly in antitrust and other times suspended antitrust. And, Mm. uh, you know, the racial politics of the New Deal are quite complicated. One of the things that they did was sort of, um, and this is very familiar to us today, was, you know, claim that the New Deal was the road to statism, the road to collectivism, the road to Mm -hmm. totalitarianism Mm -hmm. at a time when you're right, when much of the world seemed to be moving in a direction of, of, uh, you know, um, autocratic statism of some sort. Mm -hmm. So the idea that there was maybe a slippery slope to that. But um, so that's one sort of distortion that I think a lot of free enterprisers made about the New Deal. But um, the other point that I make the flip side of that is that, you know, they were quite um, loose about what the state meant. And business leaders were certainly happy to seek state support, um, Mm. uh, you know, frequently. And it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, I think that free markets wasn't really um, necessarily what their vision was. I think their vision was business autonomy. Many of the people who, uh, you know, one of my arguments is that, uh, you know, business leaders, lobbyists, advocates um, were among the leading Proponents of this idea of free enterprise, and that's, I think, what you know. What they wanted was not necessarily an ideologically pure system. Um, what they want, what they were uncomfortable with, was uh, kind of a growing state as a countervailing power uh, that was recognizing, for example, trade unionism, um, that was engaged in regulation, um, that was also engaged in certain kinds of government spending that they disliked you know, you really see this during World War II, which is Mm. obviously a huge state project uh, and in which business leaders benefited enormously. uh, But they, you know, they kept trying to frame the war as a war for free enterprise. Um, And it seems almost comical to do that when you basically have uh, business flat on its back and then only kind of rising up again due to massive government spending uh, on armaments and such, and um, bringing the country ultimately to nearly full employment and all that. Um, And so, you know, I think what they meant was, this is a war for free enterprise. What they meant was that this is, uh, we need to make sure that when this war is over, that government is rolled back, that government power is rolled back, that business uh, legitimacy remains strong as a political force and that uh, the United States doesn't go in a social democratic direction after the war.
0: Right. So how does this, uh, I mean, you ultimately arguing, right, that this period really informs a lot about the rhetoric that is still used in, in a lot of uh, cases uh, in these conversations. So how how does some of this um, thinking, some of this ideology, some of this uh, rhetoric persist in, in uh, current yeah. conversations?
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that was one of the real surprising findings of my book as a historian, you know, we're trained to look at change over time uh, and to be very attuned to that. But one of the really surprising things, even though my argument is in the first century of free enterprise use from say the 1820s, 30s through the 1930s, there is a lot of evolution, uh, a lot of change, which I'm happy to talk about later on. I've, I've hinted at some of it, but after the new deal, it remains remarkably stable and, you know, the tropes really don't change very much and they're still with us today uh, Mm -hmm. very much. Um, And it really becomes sort of a, a rhetoric that is used in different contexts. You know, one of the things I say is the free enterprise text remained the same even though the context changed a lot. So, you know, we're seeing claims for example that the infrastructure bill is socialism Uh, so much of the slippery slope rhetoric that we see about how the presidency of Barack Obama or now Joe Biden is trying to bring in socialism through the back door, uh, through the, uh, you know, slow growth of these various seemingly not socialist plans at all, but that this will eventually lead to that. And, uh, you know, I, I tried it. My evidence is unassailable that this is the case, Mm. that the the language remains very similar. It presented a challenge to me as a historian because, um, again, it's not what we're used to. Uh, It's not, uh, but it's not typical, I think, of how political language works. But, um, you know, I think what happened was that in opposition to the New Deal order for 40 years um, from the 1930s through the 1970s, This was sort of a minoritarian discourse, uh, but I think increasingly effective as the New Deal order began to fall apart. And uh, as whenever there was a kind of a weakness, this language became more popular, seemed to explain things more to more Americans. And uh, it was, uh, you know, such a familiar language that had been repeated over and over again in newspaper columns and sermons and company Uh, propaganda that workers were forced to read, you know, um, in all sorts of ways.
0: You were hinting at the fact that the term free enterprise did change in meaning considerably before the 1930s. And I'm, I'm curious to hear more about that because I think it's very easy to take the position of saying, well... What you're describing are really just two fundamental forces in American politics one that wants to expand the state one that wants to like create more welfare institutions regulate is skeptical of business and one you know that is the opposite and maybe as you're saying right maybe it's hard to define what they're really for but but they definitely know what they're against um and then that's really where this dialogue comes from you you could argue right so so, so in what ways was um, the rhetoric around this issue different before the 1930s
1: well I think I think that's a great point that you make and and obviously I mean I think that's how that's one certain way that free enterprise versus say post-war liberalism has shaped up is mm-hmm. is in that debate. So I think that's certainly an element of it. But you know I do think it's interesting to look at the changing meaning of the term. I mean one I've discussed its affiliation with abolition in the in the early mm-hmm. 19th century, its affiliation with um you know, infrastructure and state building projects. Um, But another thing that I think was really interesting is that in the the 19th century, free enterprise was um, connected up with what was called the free labor ideology. Um, Mm -hmm. And free enterprise in the 20th century came to mean the business firm. A lot, you know, a lot of times it became a synonym for uh, the business firm, acting autonomously. And you know, uh, when people talked about the free enterprise community and that sort of thing, that's what they meant. But in the 19th century, it really, its focus was labor, not business. Um, only in the 20th century was free enterprise sort of assimilated uh, primarily with uh, kind of the business perspective and the business point of view. So I think that's a really important shift. One really important turning point I think came in the early 20th century progressives you know they were both democrats and republicans but they they used the term free enterprise a lot and they were very concerned with business corruption they were not using the term as kind of synonymous with business should be able to do whatever it wants and that regulation is a problem they tended to be in favor of certain kinds of regulation of business you know they were the ones who pushed through the pure food and drug act and um, and and other other kinds of, um, of business regulation. But many of those same progressives, and this is one of the kind of surprising things I found is that uh, in the 1920s, many of those people began to believe that the bigger problem was not business power, but government power. And a lot of them began to transfer their concern about business corruption to, government corruption to right. overly powerful government and uh, many people say that explicitly you know I used to use this term in regard to sort of unfettered business but now I'm worried about unfettered government and there was an element of progressivism that helps explain this which is you know they were really into efficiency and mm. uh, it's in that era that you begin to hear things like government should be run like a business and so many of these people begin to kind of get that idea that the problem with government um, is that it's not really business-like and and making it business-like became important. So I think all these things sort of partly come together um, to kind of form the anti-New Deal free enterprise discourse. But prior to that, you know, I think the biggest difference to me is that free enterprise in the 19th century really conjures up the enterprising spirit of free laborers. And Mm. in the 20th century, it really conjures up the enterprising spirit of the business firm. And to me, that's a fundamental difference that's really important.
0: Right. One thing that struck me about um, a lot of the rhetoric that you uh, report in the book is just how populist it is nonetheless. right, An extreme... um, Focus constantly on this idea that, uh, first of all, and I'm not sure anti intellectualism, but certainly anti elitism, right? That that it sort of like swings very very strongly in there, and which which is again right something that is very strongly echoed still today, but also always this reference to to common sense, right? That the yes. free enterprise system this is common sense. If you ask the uh, um, the real Americans, right, like the hardworking Americans, the everyday Americans, they they know. Uh, you know how things should work, how things ought to work, and, and it's only these, um, you know, bureaucratic elites that are trying to distort everything. Can you uh, do you want to add anything to that? Or? Yeah,
1: no, I, those are two key points. I mean, I think you know what, uh, what we maybe today call conservative populism, you know, has many roots, but certainly I think one root is is free enterprise discourse. Um, there's no doubt that that they speak in a popular populist register an anti-elite register. They talk about new dealers as out-of-touch bureaucrats, kind of utopians who aren't really in touch with the needs of the people and so forth. And they also depict themselves constantly as small entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, mm. That's really, I think, really crucial. Uh, even though many of the advocates of free enterprise were large business firms, they kind of never Oh, they never really admitted that. And so they were always talking about the corner grocer, the peanut vendor, uh, you know the the corner store, this sort of thing was who they claimed to be speaking for, the ordinary American small business person. And I think again, that was a very, very successful language. and I spent a lot of time in the book talking about that. And I think common sense is really super important. The idea they were right that, what really matters a lot in American politics is claiming the terrain of common sense, right. and we see this today all the time. You know, um, the uh, the mainstream media is always very very worried about budget deficits, and um, why is that? Well, I think there's been a campaign, you know, for for decades to um, talk about what a common sense budget is. Uh, which is really quite conservative in nature. Um, and I think, I mean, one of the things about that, that I, you know, I didn't really nail down in the book is why this worked, <laughs> you know, I, it's a really hard question. I think I showed how it worked, how free enterprise became dominant. Why is a harder question that I admit that I don't think I fully answered, but I do think there's a power of repetition Um, Mm. If you say things over and over again in a wide variety of venues and, you know, in newspaper columns and sermons, um, in essay contests that students have to write in their in their schools about the, you know, about the virtues, why free enterprise is an American virtue and this sort of thing. So I think these things go together and um, clearly that sort of reactionary populism is, is one of the most important things to understand about our own political moment today. And exactly. I don't think there's necessarily a straight line from one to the other, but I think there's certainly roots of that, you know, go back at least to this period. Um, and uh, it is something that, you know I think Franklin Roosevelt is, was very good at responding to it, but mm-hmm. over time, kind of New Deal liberalism became not very good at answering, responding to that question. And so you constantly have you know, Barry Goldwater, conservative Republican, very anti-labor, but running as the candidate of ordinary working, at least white people, Ronald Reagan, the same thing, uh, mm. Donald Trump, the same thing. And uh, it's been a very effective through line in modern conservatism.
0: Yeah, I would really like us to speculate on on how this works with because because this common sense uh, rhetoric, but also just impression in, in in so many Americans is really striking to me. Like whenever I speak to people who um, are outside of academia, and I say uh, they ask me, you know, what do you do, whatever, and I say, well, I'm a political economist. The the funny thing is that people hear economist and say, oh, so you're a conservative. Right. <laughs> Which I think is a really funny <laughs> right. association to me. Right. Because yeah, I mean for so many reasons, right? So um first of all, this this idea that, that economics is conservative as a as a as a discipline is is striking to me. But also the yeah, the then the extension of that is obviously that um yeah, that people assume that so many things or or they at least present it as common sense solutions to things. It's, it's yeah. always the, the rhetoric that, that people employ. One of the um, things
1: that, if I could just add to that, one of the things please. that I try to write about in my book is the um, one element of that is the artful conception that free enterprises really developed in their pamphlet literature, that free enterprise was natural. Uh, right. And they constantly analogized it to you know, other natural systems like the human body or um, the ecosystem and so forth and that, you know, New Deal liberalism was artificial. Um, and that, mm. um, you know, the there was sort of a uh, an economic state of nature that, um, right. that was on the one hand common sense, on the other hand, it was wondrous and miraculous. I mean, and that's one of the interesting things is that they do use these terms, you know, Ronald Reagan would talk about the miracle of free markets. Mm. Um, so on the one hand, this is a group claiming common sense rationality. On the other hand, they're claiming a religiosity, a one, a spirit of wonder, um, and um, um, the idea that this is uh, a uh, you know one of my chapters is called "Faith and Free Enterprise." The idea that mm-hmm. um, this is a mystical. System that we can't really understand. What we do understand is that if you mess with this mystical mystical system, you know there's going to be great damage, maybe irreparable damage.
0: Yeah, irreparable damage, and um, five minutes to midnight, right? Of uh, things slipping away. That's a big theme in your book as well that you uh, reiterate that. I'm assuming, right? I, I mean, I mean, you're the expert, but I'm assuming ever since uh, the, this initial New Deal opposition post, it, it was a constant crisis moment for, for these people, yes. right? It was yes. always just about to slip away.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. And again, we see that today as well, creating a climate of emergency and using apocalyptic language was very much a part of their rhetoric. And again, I think it's interesting because free enterprisers portrayed themselves as sort of, you know, common sense, moderate businessmen. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, um, you know, and all of their predictions failed completely. I mean, I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post about this last year, because it really struck me that at the Republican convention in 2020, um, several people quoted a speech of Ronald Reagan. This was a speech he made about Medicare. In 1961, when Kennedy first proposed it. Um, And he said, you know, if this passes our children and our children's children will not know the freedom that we knew. Mm. So it's weird, right? Because Medicare passed, and we're still free, you know, we still have freedom, it did not create a dictatorship of the proletariat or communism or anything like that. Um, And you would think that most conservatives would try to uh, put that in the memory hole and forget right. that anyone ever said it, but conservatives are very happy to repeat failed predictions as if they were prophecies. And, um, and it's unbelievable how often you see that language of Reagan requoted without any concern about the fact that it was a completely laughable prediction that proved to be completely false.
0: Yeah, let's, let's close on a short conversation about an maybe maybe an outlook. What, what's your estimation of, of how this rhetoric plays out in current debates? Obviously, you mentioned, no, you didn't talk about the debt ceiling, um, about uh, the COVID response, about contemporary debates. Do you feel like there's any uh, change in the rhetoric of late? Or is it still the same debate? Or is there a, possibly a move more towards something like... Um, you could call it government in enhanced or government guided business or something like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And one thing I, I do try to argue in the book, my book is mostly about up until most of the chapters are on the period from the 1930s to the 1970s. Cause I do think that free enterprise, because it was an oppositional ideology, it worked best in exile and after mm. the age of Reagan uh, and so forth, it was still used Um and it's still important, but I think it's nowhere near as central um, today as it was in those 40 years. However, I, as you're hinting, I think so much of the worldview is with us today. Uh, you know, the constant apocalyptic uh, language, the slippery slope language, the claiming of common sense, the connection between any sort of government reform and socialism, all of these things are still very much with us. Um, and one of the things I wrote about in my epilogue, which I still wonder about is whether Trumpism will kill free enterprise or reinvigorate it, because, mm. you know, he is unusual in that really never uses the term. I think he used it once I, that I was able to find this in his entire career. I don't think he ever used it once as president. Maybe he might have maybe once or twice, but really not at all. And in the presidential platform of 2016, of course, there was no platform in 2020, because it was just, we love Trump and whatever he does is our platform. But in 2016, free enterprise was very peripheral, I think it was only mentioned twice in the Republican platform. Uh, And if you compare that with 2012, when Mitt Romney ran, uh, yeah. when it was used, I can't remember how many times, maybe a dozen times, including in I think the second paragraph, and uh, Mitt Romney framed his campaign as free enterprises on trial because of Obamacare and things like that. Trump didn't really do that, you know and so he uses a lot of the same you know gestures and rhetoric, but uh, not really in the container of free enterprise. So, Uh, You know, partly because he is a statist in many ways and Mm. uh, doesn't make any bones that he's going to use the state to screw his enemies and reward his friends and himself without apologies and does not, you know, does not kind of put himself in the position of the moderate people who were talking about faith and free enterprise in mid 20th century America.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, possibly th- this rhetoric is a little bit exhausted, right? Maybe um, people, uh, voters, um, don't remember, you know, th- maybe voters are too, too too old to remember or, yeah, don't live anymore that they can think about this initial period that you're describing in your book, right? And now there are different cultural touchstones that politicians need to refer to. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, a lot of people say that. I kind of disagree with this, but a lot of people say, you know, Trump legitimize big government for conservatives and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, we overstate that. I, I think there's a large extent to which Trump was a fairly traditional Republican president. You know, there are ways in which he wasn't. There are ways in which he's much more autocratic and dangerous. But, you know, he did push for a big tax cut. Uh, he did push to, you know, get rid of the safety net. You know, all of these things were sort of in keeping with a free enterprise worldview as it developed in the in the 20th century. So I, I think the jury is still out on whether this language is exhausted or not. I think it's certainly possible that it is. And, uh, you know, some people say um, Chris Hayes wrote a piece in The Atlantic recently about how the Republicans have actually moderated on policy um, so that hmm. terrain is, is less about, you know, what it was in the early part of the 21st century about how big the state will be. Uh, But I I don't totally agree with, with Hayes on that. I thought it was an interesting article, but I think my bottom line would be that many of these same battles that you talked about at the beginning of our podcast about sort of a state that uh, provides a safety net that regulates Mm -hmm. business versus those uh, seeking uh, to weaken those forces, I still think is a fundamental, uh, pu- fundamental, maybe the fundamental pattern in our politics today.
0: Professor Lawrence Clickman, thank you so much for being part of the podcast.
1: Uh, thank you very much, Nicholas. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Political
0: Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, neither free nor fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Witschduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we are curious about your feedback And if you have any questions, suggestions or concerns, please contact UWPoliticalEconomy at
1: gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.